0: This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the 2020 Real Estate Forum, brought to you virtually by Informa Markets. Join the industry on the 2nd and 3rd December by registering at realestateforums.com after you listen to this episode to join Aaron and myself at the forum this year. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
1: Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me as always is Adam Wadig. This is a part of our Real REIT cover with partnership with Informa. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Mark Rothschild, who is the managing director of equity research at Conaccord Genuity. Mark, thanks for coming on. This is an interesting topic. We haven't really had somebody with Mark's background on the podcast before. I guess, Mark, and correct me if I'm wrong and we'll get into it, but one of your main functions is really sort of research on the real estate investment trusts and I guess providing valuations and insights. Before we do that, though, Mark, with our guests, we always like to go backwards just to set a bit of a platform for our future discussions. Maybe just talk about how you got into this world and how you ended up being a real estate investment trust expert.
2: Sure. Thanks. Nice to be talking to you guys. So when I finished an MBA, I was in the US and my first job, I landed on Wall Street at Salomon with Barney in the investment banking division, and the way it worked then is you went into a training program, which was a six-week program, and at the end it was a little bit of a matching game with the groups in all the different sectors. And you, know, you go back to 2000 when I started, and technology was a hot sector. Media was very hot in the U.S. as well. M&A, and somehow I ended up in the real estate sector, which was not the most exciting sector at the time. This was you know right during the tech bubble, but I did end up in the real estate sector. And from doing investment banking for a short period of time, ended up also doing credit research at Moody's, the rating agency in New York. And I grew up in Toronto, wanted to come back to Toronto at some point, ended up meeting some people in Toronto, one of my visits back to visit family, and was convinced to join a firm in Canada doing equity research covering the REIT sector, obviously on Canadian REIT, which is a little different than following the US, but quite a bit of it is the same I moved back to Toronto, started coming to Canadian REITs. I joined Genuity Capital Markets a couple of years later, which was right at the beginning when the firm was created. Genuity was subsequently bought five years later by Canaccord. So I've been with the combined firm for 10 years since then. So it's pretty much been 15 years covering the Canadian REITs at Genuity Capital Markets following a couple of years at another firm.
1: So before we go on, maybe just quickly describe the difference between American and Canadian REITs before we focus almost exclusively on the Canadian market.
2: Yeah. So I'd say in general, the Canadian REITs lag the U.S. REITs in the maturity of the sector in many ways. And it's been a constant theme going back some time. The Canadian REIT sector is newer, it's smaller. But having said that, whereas you wouldn't have said this 10 years ago or 15 years ago, at this point now, we have Canadian REITs that are definitely what I would call, some of them are world-class. And as far as the governance, the assets, the profile of how they create value. So the sector is really matured, but overall, the U.S. REIT market is quite a bit larger. There are many more different REITs. There are more specialized REITs. There are things that are allowed in Canada that wouldn't be as allowed in the U.S. as far as the REIT investors go. Right now, we have U.S. investors who look at Canadian REITs, Canadian investors who look at U.S. REITs. You go back many years ago that you didn't have that. So the markets were looked at very, very differently. But For the most part, real estate's the same in Canada the U.S., and I think there's
0: quite a bit of similarity between the different markets now. And I promise you won't tell anybody your answer, but which setup do you like better? Which model do you like better? I think that most people will
2: acknowledge that there are many advantages and many things to like better about the U.S. REIT model as far as they're probably somewhat tougher on some things such as corporate governance issues. That doesn't mean that many of the REITs in Canada are weak in that regard. But it does mean that you've seen cases in the past where things that were allowed to fly in Canada would not have been allowed to fly in the US. But having said that, the Canadian REIT market has grown and matured. And for the most part, we have very high quality REITs in Canada now with some very strong management teams, solid governance across the board.
0: We'll leave the American market because we are supposed to be focused on exclusively Canadian real estate. So I will steer you away from that one. What are the key metrics you look at when evaluating REITs? What's the structure the baseline you use just to put goalposts around different REITs when you're comparing them? There's two different ways to think about it. You could either think of it as a stock where you're looking at a stream of cash flows that you're going
2: to get and with the REITs, with the payouts relatively high as compared to many other asset classes, we have dividends or for the REITs, we have distributions. So that's one way to look at it. But We have an advantage in real estate when you follow REITs that most other asset classes don't have is that we have a liquid private market for the assets that most days you can get a value for that and see transactions in the private market to see what the assets are worth. If you're looking at many other asset classes, they don't have that same type of liquidity in the private market. So it's really a big advantage we have, whereas we can calculate the net asset value of a REIT by just looking at the cap rates that are being applied in the private market regularly. And therefore, if you're looking at a REIT that's trading at a 20 25% discount to the private market value. Well, there's very often, and right now we're at a period where transaction volume has slowed for some asset classes that has come to a complete halt, obviously, because of COVID and the different ways that impacts real estate, which I'm sure we'll discuss. But when a REIT trades at a big discount to an you might get another REIT or a private company or a pension fund offered to privatize that REIT. And we've seen over the years. Many REITs are privatized at times when the REITs are trading at a big discount to NAV. And sometimes there'll be a value placed on the platform or the management team. But that's a big advantage we have in real estate. And therefore, net asset value is, for most of us, a very good metric in looking at the REITs. And it's something that people like yourselves and listening who understand real estate can all understand that the cap rates are out there. We can debate what the right cap rate is. But when you see a REIT that's very cheap, often it can be taken over. Now, there are reasons why in certain cases that's not likely to happen, whether it's because someone controls the REIT or it might not be the type of real estate someone would want to privatize. But in many cases, in fact, most cases, net asset value is a good anchor to help pull up the REITs. If it's a case where the cash flow is really growing, maybe you want to pay a premium to NAV, but at the very least, you would look and say anything at a big
1: discount to NAV, that would be attractive before we move on, Mark, just for those that may not be holding on to the rope, can you do an elevator explanation of NAV formula?
2: Sure. So an NAV is really just applying a cap rate to the net operating income, which is just the, the property level income. So the cap rate is kind of just the inverse of a multiple. So the lower the cap rate, the higher the value. So you go back 10, 15 years ago, you'd see REITs buying properties at seven, eight cap rates. 7%, 8% going in on yields. Obviously, that's come down quite a bit, partially because of all the money looking to invest in real estate, partially because interest rates have dropped so much. So putting the cap rate value on that operating income gets you to a gross value. And then what you would do is you would deduct the debt associated with that property and you'd adjust for other assets or liabilities you would have, but that's really the main part. And you get that net number, you divide it by The units or shares outstanding, and you can have an NAV per
1: share. And then you compare that to what is trading in the marketplace, and that's how you start making your valuations. Or you could also compare it to how other REITs are trading. So if you're looking at the different industrial
2: REITs, and you see one trading at a discount to NAV of 15%, and one trading at a discount to NAV of 5%, if you think they both have comparable properties, comparable management teams, comparable growth prospects, then one is likely to be a better value than the other.
0: So if liquidity is a big advantage with the REITs, do you recommend an investment structure where you are getting in and out of various REIT units as valuations fluctuate? What we've seen has been that many of the clients
2: that we deal with, the major mutual fund managers in Canada or in the US, their assets have grown quite significantly over the past number of years. And they can't just get in and out of a REIT in a day or two if they want. The liquidity may not be there. So many of the funds and clients that we deal with have to make decisions based on a longer period of time. So they will pick REITs that not only offer good value, better management teams they want to invest with, knowing that they're not going to trade it in and out too frequently. And that's not really what they want to do in general. There are a number of other factors that will go into the decisions, but for the smaller, more nimble investors or with larger REITs where you can move around somewhat with some flexibility, yes, you'd want to be able to move into the REITs that have better
1: value. Let's date stamp where we are. It's September 30th in the middle of COVID. Second wave is coming upon us, however you want to define it. But before we go to the impact that's had on REITs in your world, let's just talk about what the world was like back in 2018, 2019, 2020. I mean, January, February, 2020. It was a fairly hot market, if I'm not mistaken. And there was a lot of value in the REIT sector. And maybe just talk about what it's been like kind of riding the investments in REITs. Maybe just talk about appetite for the asset, and then up to February or March, and then we'll talk about then what's transpired since then. I don't recall
2: a period in my career that was hotter than late 2019, early 2020. While interest rates were higher than they are now, they were still extremely low. You had capital flowing into real estate, and you had economic growth, and in particular, in some of the markets in Canada that most of the Canadian reach are focused on. I'm not just talking about downtown Toronto. Montreal, things were going well. Ottawa, Vancouver. Yes, Alberta has been relatively weak, absolutely weak, but it was extremely strong. And it was strong across almost all asset classes. I mean, downtown Toronto office was extremely tight. It had never been tighter. In fact, downtown Toronto was the tightest office market in North America. Montreal was doing better as well. Industrial has been extremely hot, and that's ridden through COVID, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Rental apartment markets, Across Almost all Canadian markets are extremely tight. Rental rates were rising. On retail, there has been some weakness, but for most of the retail REITs in Canada, which are more grocery anchored with some power centers and less of the regional mall type, it was pretty good with rents holding firm. And even though there was some bankruptcies of some tenants, it wasn't really a major issue with new development. And many of the retail REITs focusing on residential development, on excess density. It was an incredible time for the Canadian REIT sector. There was a ton of capital raised over the past year. REITs were expanding into new development projects. They were strengthening their balance sheets. It was really a phenomenal time for the Canadian REIT sector until we just got hit with this unbelievable experience that we're going through with COVID, as you mentioned.
0: So while things are on the upswing, as you just indicated, obviously the real estate sector had so much upper pressure on valuations would your recommendations be mostly on the buyer hold side of that point? Or would you even, despite the strength of the real estate sector, would you still see overvaluation in any of the uh, REITs?
2: Well, you would see some REITs that were relatively expensive, but considering the growth that was expected over the next five to 10 years from many of them, it was understandable. If you owned apartment properties in Ontario or in Montreal, I and mean, it didn't have to be just in prime Toronto. It could have been in a secondary market in Ontario or even in Ottawa, which is a relatively larger market. The in place rents on apartments had gone up so much that you were looking at strong rent growth for years. And with the market being so tight, even with new supply, it didn't appear that there was going to be a lid on the rent growth anytime soon, especially with immigration continuing in Canada. So it was reasonable to pay a significant premium. I could say the same thing for if you own office properties in downtown Toronto where rental rates were really rising. And even though there is new supply that is coming online, when you have a downtown Toronto vacancy rate of 2%, it's going to take quite a bit of new supply and some weakening for that to stop. We have had some good momentum in downtown Toronto heading into this with a lot of tech companies expanding in downtown Toronto. So that's office. And industrial clearly has been a hot sector. So it was reasonable to pay a premium. And We spoke before about buying REITs at a discount to NAV. When you have significant cash flow growth coming for years, you could talk about premium to NAV. Another way to look at it is maybe the cap rates that us analysts were using were not low enough or the multiples were not high enough because of the growth that would come over the years.
1: We've been lucky enough, Adam and I, to interview some heavy hitters in the REIT space. And post-COVID, in certain instances, they've kind of shrugged their shoulders without really being able to explain what's transpired with their share prices. Before we kind of get into more maybe the nitty-gritty with what transpired with COVID, I'm curious, and maybe these are connected, what kind of impact do the retail investors have on the REIT space? If you read the newspaper, there's always these articles about, if you want to get involved in real estate, don't buy a condo, don't invest in a rental property, just invest in the REITs. It's a way safer way to do it. With E-Trade and all these other platforms, there seems to be a lot more money coming through on an individual basis. Have you seen an implication What impact does that have on the way that over time the trends fluctuate in that REIT space?
2: I would say it does have some impact, but it's not as material as where maybe generalist mutual fund managers or hedge fund managers are investing their money. So the REIT investors, the income-oriented investors, they're likely to be to a large degree in the REIT sector anyway. And then the generalist investors can come in in a big way into REITs when they're hot, and we saw a number of these investors coming into some of the apartment REITs over the past year, pre-corona, that is, just because of the significant cash flow that was coming. So I'd say it's, the institutional side is definitely much more significant than the retail side. But I can tell you, Canaccord has a large wealth management division. It's still small relative to the bigger banks, but they love investing in the REITs and that does matter. So I wouldn't ignore it completely.
0: Before we get into the COVID damage, management is a big part of what you look at, but management is a little harder to define with an Excel spreadsheet, like obviously past performance and yield and nav is all pretty easy to define in numbers, but the management team's experience prior to COVID would have been important, and I'm sure even more so now. How do you factor in some of the more intangible elements of re-evaluation? It's
2: often ignored by many investors, and I think it's probably a mistake. You no, know, it's interesting. Asset because there was a comment by a portfolio manager who I really respect, just at the RealWeek conference, saying I'd rather invest in a company with a poor management team with the portfolio and assets I like than a strong management team if it's the assets I don't like. And I understand the context because if these are properties that are just not in the right area and are not going to perform well. Well, it's hard for a good CEO or a good operator to manage through that. But there's so many different ways that a CEO can um, impact the value. And also the way investors look at a company. I've listened to some of your podcasts. You've had some of the top Canadian REIT CEOs on over the past few months. And some of them really do create value for investors, whether it's through their ability to work with tenants, whether it's through their ability to develop properties and create value that way. In some ways, they're able to just generate more trust from investors. So it's something that really... Is important, and you know it's interesting. I spent a lot of time now with you guys already talking about net asset value, a joke that others and that I've made in the sectors. It's one of the only asset classes where you look at the value of a company with zero value for management because NAV doesn't give any value for management. It's something we struggle with when a company is taken over. Is that cap rate, the right cap rate for those assets or what was paid for the platform? Because in some cases, you're buying a platform, and when Choice, which is Loblaws bought Crete, just not too long ago, there's no question that there was value on the platform that they were buying. They were buying one of the most well-regarded management teams in the Canadian REIT sector. And that was something that was of great value to them. They didn't feel they can just go hire those people away from Crete. They bought the whole now, perhaps they wanted the assets as well, but there's no question that Loblaws was putting value and choice was putting value on the management team that they were getting when they did that acquisition. So when you look at a REIT, you think about the value. It's something that really should be considered. And even if it's not just on a takeover, you think about some CEOs who have sold properties at the right time or found some really incredible deals. That's because of the management team, not because of the existing portfolio.
1: Above and beyond management, are there any other intangibles, any other variables that can't get captured in a spreadsheet formula like your gut? Like sometimes you just, you look at everything and you go, yeah, it looks good on paper, but my instinct says no. How do you balance that?
2: The assets themselves should be captured in the cap rate or in the growth that you're going to build into the operating income or decline you're going to build into the operating income when you're figuring out the value of a company. And even if you're not doing it based on an asset value, but you're looking at the FFO, the cash flow that the REIT will produce over the next number of years, you should be capturing it that way as well. So, really, most of that should be captured. Where gut comes into it or making a call, would be, where do you think fund flows are going to come from or go over the next year or two? And factors such as what's going on in the economy and interest rates really matter. Earlier on in my career, I was taught by someone, look at the jobs report from the US sometimes more than other factors to see how the REITs are going to trade in the near term, because that can impact the 10-year bond rate, which is what's causing many investors to move in and out of REITs. So there are factors that will impact the trading of the REITs in the short term, for sure.
1: Can you define FFO, Mark? The FFO
2: is funds from operation. We also have another metric, adjusted funds from operation. And really what that attempts to do, FFO, is to back out the accounting adjustments on an income statement or a cash flow to get to the recurring cash flow that a company produces without looking at depreciation, which is a non-cash expense, or other non-cash factors. And AFFO, adjusted funds for operation, is merely taking the further adjustments such as CapEx, which wouldn't necessarily hit an income statement because those are capitalized, and getting to what is hopefully a true picture of a company's cash flow to see the sustainability of the distribution or the cash flow that you can put a multiple on and then have a better way of comparing it perhaps to other REITs or to other asset classes.
1: How do you handle the distinction between R&M and CapEx when you're doing that? Because there's a big gray area. Is there a general rule for making those determinations?
2: For me, what I've always practiced is different REITs will disclose different metrics as far as what their real R&M is. And let's look at an apartment REIT. What's the amount that they have to spend to maintain a property? And if they have to replace an elevator or do a lobby, Is that something that's maintenance or is that revenue sustaining? And yeah, many people can have different views on that. But for me, what's important is as long as I'm being consistent across the REITs in my coverage universe and applying the same rules and metrics, then when I'm comparing the different REITs, I know I'm being consistent. And it is difficult. And there are certain REITs that will have different accounting policies than others. And yes, they should all be consistent, but that's just not the world we live in. So it's important for us to try to do as much research as we can and try to be accurate. And different analysts may have different approaches, but I really believe that every analyst is going to try the best of their ability to be consistent across their coverage with their own rules. And for the most part, we get to pretty comparable numbers, although at times we can differ.
0: So you mentioned different analysts may be using uh, different criteria to get to their conclusions. Have you ever held a position that nobody agreed with amongst your peer group of analysts?
2: Yes, that will definitely happen. I think to a large degree, if you look at the different asset classes now, it's really easy to be positive on apartments or industrial, which have held up much better through Corona than maybe retail. So that's easy. And most analysts aren't going to disagree with that. But there are cases where we will differ from time to time. And there's probably a couple of companies in my coverage universe right now where I differ significantly from the other analysts. One company that comes to mind Brookfield Property Partners, DPY, which is the real estate arm of Brookfield Asset Management. I'm a hold rated on the stock. My target price is slightly below where the current unit price is. And I know I differ quite a bit from my colleagues who are quite a bit more bullish than I am. And you ask me how I feel about that. I struggle with that very much because while I think my thesis is well thought out, I have a lot of respect for those other analysts. They're not dumb. In fact, they're pretty bright. So, it's something that definitely weighs on us as analysts because no one wants to look foolish. No one wants to be
1: embarrassed. Yet someone here is going to be wrong. Can we dig down why are you have a different of opinion on that particular asset?
2: I think I'm just somewhat more cautious on the recovery for regional malls in the U.S., which is what Brookfield's focused on. And as well, I'm probably slightly more cautious than them on office properties and primary markets such as New York City and London. I think there's going to be some sort of drop in cash flow over the next few years. And while Brookfield owns some of the best buildings with long-term leases, I think it's reasonable to expect some decline in operating income as well. I think cap rates for those assets probably have risen over the last little while and probably will stay somewhat higher than the others. Having said that, I'm not really sure exactly what the beliefs are of all the other analysts, so I can't necessarily speak for them. I just suspect that's where I would differ most materially from them.
0: On the flip side of the coin, is there anybody you feel you might be overly enthusiastic about as compared to your peer group?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I'd say if you look at the retail REITs, there is some damage
0: going on in the retail
2: sector right now. And you know, I'm not going to talk specifically about which retail REITs, but overall, for the Canadian retail REITs that own high quality portfolios, it's going to be tough the next year, whether it's gyms or restaurants or some of their smaller tenants Many are struggling, and as we're heading into what looks like a second wave, with a lot of uncertainty over how the next few months or year will play out, there still are obviously quite a few questions that that remain to be answered. But I think that once we get through this, even if there is weakness from some of these tenants and some don't even make it, I think high quality real estate, if you're near where people live and near where many people live, you will come out okay. So I think some of these reads that investors are not really looking at right now and don't want to invest in it because of the risk. I think you're actually getting compensated for that risk now by buying high quality real estate at a good price. And therefore, people will look back and say, wow, that was a good opportunity. But there was some risk at the time. And you have to have some patience because we're not likely to have a strong conclusion that's come out of this that quickly. It will take some time.
1: I don't know if this is the REIT you were talking about, but Adam and I recently had the opportunity to talk with Jonathan Gitlin of RIOCAN. And he had some, I don't want to say strong, but he was, I guess, a little bit flabbergasted or surprised just by the performance of that particular REIT. If John was here right now, what would you tell him? Why has RIOCAN sort of not performed very well since COVID's hit?
2: So RIOCAN is one of them. It's not the only one, but I'd say what I would tell John and probably what I've written in my research and what John is aware of is that investors are not looking to take too much risk right now. And it's a lot easier to buy an industrial REIT, where you see that the fundamentals are very strong and demand remains high and is growing, in fact, than to buy a retail REIT where, yes, rent collections have come back to a large degree, but many of their smaller tenants are suffering and struggling and not everyone's reopened. And gyms are facing a hard time and movie theaters are facing a hard time. Restaurants are, many of them might not make it. So there's much more risk there, and. No one knows what the right cap rate is for that asset right now because those assets aren't trading the same way, whereas you see industrial REITs still buying properties. The apartment market doesn't have a ton trading right now, it appears, although you guys would know better than I, but there definitely is money out there looking to buy apartment buildings and rental buildings in Canada. So there's just more uncertainty with retail, and therefore investors are avoiding it right now, even though on a risk-reward basis, it probably is a solid, if not
0: better, investment. They always say that investments of this type are forward-looking. And so you're watching a lot of the big players that have been just copy and pasting what had worked the last 10 years up until COVID having to take a major pivot. So does the pricing reflect the market's opinion on that pivot when somebody's reached talking about, we're going to roll out a whole bunch more apartment units and excess land, or we're cutting to core markets, or any of the strategies that come out? How much of a weighting does that have? What you see them doing in the future, not necessarily what they're doing now?
1: Well, yeah, and let me just pile on, Mark, because I mean, I think you've listened to some of these podcasts where it's like Don and Chloe of Crombie talking about, you know, $6 billion of development coming. I think Rio Can's got double digit amounts. Of course, we haven't had the pleasure of talking to the leaders of choice, but they've all got huge, huge development pipelines for the next 10, 15 years. How do you incorporate those numbers into repricing?
2: Well, right now, investors don't really care to pay for new development. Some of that's going to take longer. And there's just more uncertainty. So investors are kind of ignoring that and not that interested in buying companies that have a ton of development, even with a lot of value creation. And what's fascinating is, most recently, Mitch Goldar, a smart read, if not Canada's best developer, has said, we're not slowing down. In fact, we're going faster now into new development in different asset classes. So you have, on one hand, public read investors that are somewhat more cautious, but you have Mitch Goldar not only is he pushing ahead on development, he's been buying quite a bit of units on his own in the market. He's invested personally millions of dollars more into buying his own stock at these prices. And he's not the only executive who's been buying stock. So you definitely have the insiders and executives talking one way, but also in many cases, putting their money where their mouth is by buying more units in this market. People look at or like Dream Office, which is downtown Toronto office buildings. They've been buying back stock in a big way of late, and they're not the only one. So it definitely is very interesting to see. And while it's going to take time for this to play out, I suspect that some of these unit prices will eventually recover quite nicely, although there is going to be some impairment from the value we saw earlier in 2020.
1: Why is it that investors just don't price in that future development? Because I mean, if you go back to the start of this conversation, it's all about NAV and discount to NAV. I mean, clearly, if they're building, in particular, apartment buildings, you know that there's significant cash flow coming. Uh, sometimes in the short term, let's call it short term, quote unquote, sort of two to three years, medium term and long term. And they just, they're, is it ignorance or is it just unwillingness to take on that risk, that development execution risk? I
2: think right now there's quite a bit of uncertainty. People just aren't sure how things will play out. That's part of it. But part of it is also what you said many reinvestors don't really want to take the risk. This isn't the sector where the public looks and invests with a 10-year time horizon. You have that in some other asset classes. You don't really have that in real estate. They're looking at what they have now, the income that they're getting now or next year. So I think it's a combination of a number of
0: factors. So I'm sure you've got some sort of model you use to weight the different factors that you evaluate pre-COVID versus COVID. What elements were de-weighted and which elements were more heavily weighted? And that could be broken up into geography, property types, business models, the different factors that go into the entire REIT picture.
2: Yeah. So in each asset class, it's really changed. If you'd asked me earlier in the year, let's say industrial, REITs that had exposure to Toronto, it didn't matter if it was San industrial REIT, small bay or big warehouse space, the Toronto market was so tight, you wanted to be in that market and therefore that REIT deserved a big premium. But now... You'd say, well, the small base stuff will have some more weakness. You'd rather be more in the warehouse space earlier in this year, with capital flowing all over. I probably put less value on the strength of the balance sheet than we would right now. Whereas we see that things can change dramatically pretty quickly. And while there doesn't appear to be for almost any asset class a shortage of capital to refinance properties, the ones that have the strongest balance sheets clearly did something right and were smart getting into this year, and therefore. We're definitely seeing investors put more value on the strength of a balance sheet because of that. And probably to your point about development, it's not looked at as a positive right now to have a big development pipeline that you need to finance. Investors are happier to have less risk in general. So all of those factors fit into what the major REIT investors are looking at, what analysts will put value.
0: You mentioned there that balance sheet is important. Aaron and I as lenders are job and goals to lend money. But we know that REITs take a more modest approach as opposed to the private market in investment. So how do you evaluate REITs debt structure? What are the pros and cons when you're looking at the way they use finance?
2: It does differ somewhat by asset class. In the apartment sector, if you have CMA2 financing, then that definitely gives you some more flexibility and would allow for a somewhat higher leverage. The cost of debt could be somewhat lower. But in general, I'd start with looking at a REIT's debt maturity schedule, their cost of debt, And as long as they're relatively moderately financed and not having too much risk in any one year, I'm probably a little more flexible in the way I would look at a read as far as the level of leverage. But I can tell you that there are large institutional investors that will put a premium on a read with 30% leverage as opposed to one with 45% leverage. And while everyone would put some extra value on a read with lower leverage, there are some that would put significantly greater value on those companies. And we're seeing that have an impact on the whole sector, and that's pushing leverage lower for the REITs. And it just leads to higher quality companies because you head into a period like this where capital markets could end up being tight for a period of time. The lower leverage you have, the better off you are. You can finance your growth, you can finance your development with your balance sheet. And we're at a period now where, even though interest rates remain low, we could see in some asset classes, we are seeing some pressure on asset values. And when it comes to refinance mortgages, if you have lower leverage, you're just better positioned. And to the extent we have distress, if you have lower leverage, you can take advantage of other opportunities to buy properties from somebody who's distressed. Whereas if you have higher leverage, you're not able to do anything. Wrong
0: answer, Mark. That's the wrong answer. Know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, your audience. Come on. <laughs> and Mark, we're running out of time here. So I want to look to the future before we let you go. Obviously, it's difficult right now. An epidemiologist would probably be the best guest to have right now to talk about where we're going to be a year from now, but we'll assume that COVID does resolve itself over the next 12 months or so. What do you see happening in the REIT sector over the near term before we get to the full recovery and then beyond? How fast do we bounce back? Is it the V-shape that we've heard so much about, or what do you see happening the day after we see a headline about a very safe vaccine being released?
2: Yeah. So obviously, as you started the question with saying it, you know, it's a very difficult question because there's so many parts to the medical that will impact that answer. So I'll preface my answer by saying that the way I typically answer this question is, I assume that we can get out of this relatively quickly, which may or may not be accurate, but that's just what I'm going to base my answer on. And in that case, those asset classes that are viewed as risky should, for the most part, bounce back with a few exceptions. So let's say seniors housing, that might take some extra time and there might be some changes there, some structural changes that need to be made in that sector because there were some real problems there that came to light, and it was obviously more difficult. In retail, the growth of online shopping is impacting retail in material ways. It was changing before and this has only accelerated it. So it might take some time for certain parts of retail, but high-quality properties that are really well-located and strong urban locations should come out of this relatively unscathed, but it might take some time. When you look at the apartment sector, it's been holding up better than others, but it's facing an issue now with immigration to Canada taking a big hit. If we get out of this quickly and immigration recovers, I think the apartment sector can be right back to where we were pretty quickly with some issues such as a slowing job market and rent freezes like we've seen in Ontario on renewals. So there are some issues, but we shouldn't be able to get back to where we were in some asset classes pretty quickly. So we're relatively bullish, but it's going to take some time. And there still are plenty of questions that need to be answered. And when you think about office properties, working home is a hot topic. It started off by everyone saying they're never coming back to the office. And lately it's been more and more of companies saying, we realize that we can't have the same culture. We can't train people. We're not getting people communicating the same way from home. So we want people back in the office. But if there are positive tests and if there are people scared of going to the office, That's going to take some time. There are things that need to be worked through as far as spacing, elevators. There are some issues. So there's a lot that needs to be worked through, but we're pretty optimistic that to the extent we can get past this over the next six months to a year, that many asset classes can recover through that period as well and function comparably or at least close to how they were before as we head into the back half of 2021.
1: Last question. I always have fun with this because I regularly ask this question of our guests and I kind of make up a dollar amount and say if you had X billions of dollars, what would you do with it? What asset class would you invest in or what REIT would you buy? But I'm sensitive and as you indicated off air, you probably can't answer that question. So let me take it a different route. Let's say we've got some listeners here that are fortunate enough to have found themselves with a thousand bucks, 5,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks. They decided they want to invest in a REIT. Let's maybe just keep it simple. What are the three things that they should be looking at to identify or judge the investment potential of that REIT? Yeah,
2: so I would say if there's one thing we've learned this year, it's that things can change really quickly in the fundamentals of an asset class. So even if something looks like it's relatively defensive right now, that doesn't mean it's going to be that way in six months or a year. So diversification has only become more important in the past year. Some of the highest quality retail properties look somewhat risky right now. And while we think they're going to do well, things have changed. So there's no question that diversification is really important. But as far as what you would look for in a REIT, I'd say you want an asset class that you believe in and you understand. And whether it's office, retail, industrial apartments, they're all good places that you can make money over the long term. And I would focus on Quality management teams, which, yes, for the average investor, that might not be something they fully appreciate or understand. But we're actually pretty lucky now that if you go across the Canadian wheat market, most of the management teams are exceptionally talented and very, very well regarded. I look at management teams, and while I wouldn't put the most emphasis in general on a stock that I want to buy on, which has necessarily the strongest balance sheet, but you definitely want to avoid the ones that are riskier balance sheets. And along with that, I'd say the payout ratio is something that matters. So companies that are operating at above a 100% payout ratio for an extended period of time, which is not the case right now for most or almost any REIT, is something you do want to focus on. So there are a few key metrics. And looking at whether it's dividend growth over the long term, whether it's cash flow growth, that can give you some indication of how this company has operated over time.
1: What's the payout ratio? Mark, before we let you go, just so that people aren't left hanging, what does that mean? The payout ratio just represents the percentage of
2: your recurring cash flow that you're paying out as a dividend. So the trend has been to operate with a lower payout ratio and to retain more cash. But if a company is paying out more than it brings in, it can manage that for a year, often two years. But over time, they're probably, not always, but probably going to have to cut the distribution if that's occurring for more than a year or two. Through the cycle, we've seen some weeks that have had to cut their distributions.
0: And obviously, that's not a positive thing. Mark, this has been super informative and a very illuminating conversation. I got to say that Aaron and I probably should be embarrassed that we have launched our first podcast in 2016. And this is the first time we've had a guest on with yours, especially. So we hope to have you back on at some point sooner than letting four years elapse again because this was very interesting I want to thank First National for powering the podcast Informa for introducing us to Mark and setting this up and most importantly I want to thank our guest Mark Thank thank you so much thanks Mark great conversation looking forward to having you back again
1: okay good don't forget up next we do have the after show Welcome to the after show, the commercial real estate podcast after show, where Adam and I sort of digest the conversation we just had. I didn't know what to expect getting into that with Mark in such a topic that I'm quite frankly so unfamiliar with, but geez, like I found that so enlightening. I suspect a lot of our listeners did as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, at First National, we do have exposure to a lot of the REITs, but not the necessarily the analysis of, not the way the investment market necessarily looks at them. So I did find that super interesting. Something he did point out that I was aware of, but it's kind of good to hear him drive it home, was the liquidity of REIT units. I've got friends that invest in a number of different asset types, and I don't mean specifically real estate. And I'll say, what about commercial real estate? They go, oh, I love the metrics, I love the returns, but it's just so cumbersome getting in and out of real estate. If you want to buy a property and own it and self-manage, forget that, that's like a part-time job. But of course, REITs, you can get in and out in the same afternoon. I mean, Mark did say he does not recommend doing that, but you can get in and out of real estate the same day if you want via the REIT units. And it's a very valid point. I'm sure everybody can relate to being involved in the closing of a property and it can be very consuming over the course of a couple of months.
1: Well, yeah, yeah. And the answer to his last question was really fascinating, particularly through the lens of COVID and just what's transpired. I mean, seven months ago, whatever, pick a date, middle of February you would have thought that an investment in some of those really strong retail-anchored REITs was absolutely sound. Who could have ever predicted we've been in this world where all of a sudden retail has gone from the darling to the dungeons of the real estate asset classes? And so his answer of diversify, you can't predict what's going to happen in the future. So if you are investing, pick an industrial, pick a retail, pick an office, pick an apartments, and make sure that you're exposed to all of them. And again, to your comment, you can't do that. I mean, it's really, really hard to do that. Not through REIT investment. I mean, going out and trying to buy an apartment building, an office building, an industrial building, and a retail building, and take you a couple of years, right? And a lot of money. Like, you can't just take 10,000 bucks from your savings account and buy four different asset classes, right? So.
0: <laughs> and it did highlight as well, just in terms of investment, Mitch Goldhauer buying units. I think that's very telling about the strength of retail, their belief that they've got a viable pivot to their program or a survival strategy to the other side of COVID. I was referencing some of the interviews that we've done. I forgot Peter Sweeney. And one of my favorite
1: metrics that's ever been used was he talked about the amount of parking spaces in a measurable unit of football fields. And I now can't remember the number, but it was like 800 or 8,000 football fields of parking lot that they own, right? And then <laughs> if you
0: think about it that way, there's a lot of development opportunities right in that portfolio. And that was actually something else that surprised me, uh, me about the conversation when he mentioned that the development potential doesn't have a big weighting in terms of the present valuation yeah, of the property. That's yeah, that's really eh? me. Like, yeah.
1: As lenders, I mean, I guess you and I, we're doing five- and ten-year terms, and obviously our horizon is way different. But I mean, when we talk to the borrowers, I mean, their horizons are 30, 40, 50 years, particularly some of the pension funds, life codes, etc. So that the REIT investors are thinking today, just seems misaligned to me. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of just thinking out loud, but you would think that they'd be, well, oh, wait a minute. If everyone else in the real estate community is thinking about 5, 10, 15, 20 year horizons of calculating their ROIs based on those time frames, you would think that an investor in a REIT would be thinking like that too. But maybe they just need the ability to exit much more quickly and so can't think that way. I don't know. I, I didn't really
0: capture from Mark what the reasoning was behind that. I might have the answer. I think it was Peter Sweeney who was talking about the average investment hold period being on these REIT units being very short. I could be wrong on who said it. I'm pretty sure it was Peter Sweeney, but I'm very confident that it was said on one of our podcasts that the average hold period on the REIT units is not very long. So maybe if the average hold periods less than a year… They don't really care about the 20,000 apartment units that a major REIT's going to roll out over the next decade.
1: Yeah, so this is not investment advice, but... Clearly not, clearly not. (laughs) But it appears to me, if you're... (laughs) Maybe I'm going to do this as soon as we sign off here. Just go buy some REITs and forget about them, right? Pick five and just forget about them. It's like Bitcoin. Go buy some Bitcoin, stash it away, and find out what it's worth in 20 years from now, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you don't want to spend your entire life researching REITs like Mark does, just take the advice he gave in the last five minutes of the podcast, take some money, diversify, plug it into a handful of potential winners, and then sit on it long-term. You'll probably do all right. You'd probably do better if you were, you know, the level of understanding that Mark has of these. But as a starting point, I thought that was a good starter pack for REIT investment.
1: All right, well, next time we have him on, we're going to challenge him to that, right? <laughs> I'll buy yeah. random REITs and we'll come back in a couple of years and see who's done better. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if he listens this far in the episode, he's not going to come back on after he knows that you're going to be uh, challenging him.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair.
0: yeah, fair. I guess this is a shorter after show today. I mean, it was definitely out of our usual area of expertise for Aaron and I, but I really enjoyed that. And As I mentioned during the recording, Probably a little embarrassed that it took us so long to get to such an interesting seven of the market. Yeah, agreed.
1: Agreed. Yeah. But thanks for listening, yeah. everybody. A quick reminder to register for the 2020 Real Estate Forum, which takes place on the second and third of December by going to realestateforums.com. Real Estate Forum Club members, remember to enter your membership number to receive your 20% discount. Adam and I really look forward to connecting with you and many others this year at the forum.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast.